Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And there's been a lot of talk recently about NFTs, which, of course, made me think I should probably do an episode about them to help explain what they are and why they are and how they work. And in some ways, it's a a pretty simple concept, but tries to get around some really tricky elements about digital goods. Um, And in other ways, it's just incredibly confusing and, at least in my case, frustrating. But we'll get there. So let's get some definitions out of the way first. NFT stands for non-fungible token, which is irritating because I bet a lot of people don't know what fungible means. I mean, I'm going to be honest here. I had heard the word before, but if there had been space in my brain that held that definition at some point, it was empty until recently. So does it have something to do with mushrooms, I thought? No, it does not. My brain is a bit slow, so my apologies. And for all of those of you out there who already know what fungible means and you've known it since you were three days old, my hat's off to you. You are very smart. Just don't go gloating at me because we're not all you, okay? Now, the word derives from the Latin fungi to perform. So, again, nothing to do with mushrooms, but you see why I got confused. Since about 1649, which is when Merriam-Webster says the earliest found example of the word being used in this particular way, fungible means, essentially, interchangeable. Something is fungible if there are lots of it, and one version or one instance or one example of it is just as good as any other of equal amount. Or even if you look at parts of a thing, if one part of a thing can be exchanged for an equal part of that same thing, then it's fungible. So the simplest example I can think of is a unit of currency. And since I'm American, I'm going to go with the dollar bill. So a dollar bill is worth $1 or four quarters or 20 nickels or, well, you get it. So if I have a dollar bill and you have a dollar bill, we could trade those dollar bills and nothing else really changes. We would each still possess a thing of the same value as what we had previously. We could spend either version of that dollar bill the same way. So if we didn't make the trade, if I kept my dollar and you kept yours, we could use our respective dollars to buy something, like chewing gum or something. But if instead we had swapped dollars, well then we could still use those swapped dollars to buy our chewing gum. Heck, if I had a dollar bill and you had four quarters, we could still do this, right? We could interchange my currency for yours. Because from a value perspective, there is no difference between my dollar bill and your four coins, each worth 25 cents. And one last example. Let's say that I'm a little short on cash and you generously lend me five bucks. The next day, I've got cash to repay you. Now, you don't care if the $5 bill that you gave me is the same as the $5 bill I give back to you. You don't care if it's the exact same $5 bill. You don't care if I pay you back with five $1 bills. 
Now, you might be irritated if I tried to pay you back in change, but as long as the change adds up to $5, the actual value of the transaction would be the same. The convenience it becomes an issue, but let's ignore that for now. I mean, heck, if all I had was a $10 bill, but you happen to have another $5 bill, I could give you the $10 that I had, you'd give me the $5 bill you had, and now we're square, right? Because I returned the $5 I owed you, and then you squared off the extra $5 I gave you in the form of that $10 bill. The fungibility of currency means that any version of this transaction is fine because the value of the exchange remains the same. Other stuff that can count as fungible includes commodities, you know, like lumber. Barring any clear differences in quality, one amount of a commodity is roughly equal to the same amount of that commodity, usually even if the samples were taken from totally different sources. There's no practical difference between them. So it's a very pragmatic way to go about things. You know, that pile of lumber is just as good as that other pile of lumber, you might think. Now, sure, if you were to get down to details, like the really fine stuff, there's going to be differences. But at scale, it sort of is a wash from a pragmatic standpoint. So what does non-fungible mean? Well, as the non tells us, it's the opposite of fungible. So it's something that is not interchangeable with something else. Like a car, for example. So let's say you own a 1959 Cadillac Fleetwood Series 75. And I also happen to own one of those as well. Now, first of all, you got yourself a sweet ride that you probably can't park anywhere because it's not so much a car, it's really a space station. I mean, that sucker is huge but I'm getting off track. Our respective cars are non-fungible. Even though they are the same year, the same make, the same model, we wouldn't just interchange them. We wouldn't just swap them back and forth. I mean, there are many other factors that determine the actual value of a car. How much has each car been driven? How many parts are original to the car? What condition is the car in and its parts? Has either of those cars been in any accidents? Uh, did one of them serve as the vehicle for Doc Hopper, the bad guy in the Muppet movie? All of these sort of things affect the value of the car. And so these two cars, while possessing lots of similarities, are not interchangeable. And to go back to the lending example, let's say you are a very kind person and you lend me your car, despite the fact that, you know, I don't actually drive. But for this example, we'll say that I do. So for a week, you lend me your car. It would not be acceptable for me to return a car that was different from the one you lent me. Even if the car I brought back was the same year, the same make, and the same model as the car you lent me, it's not your car. That's a problem. You would probably have some choice words for me if I tried to pull that kind of stunt. And me? Well, I'd be like, huh, you know, that is weird. Where did I even get this car? And fungibility does admittedly get a bit fuzzy, because the line between fungibility and non-fungibility isn't always easily distinguishable. For example, let's take gold. Now, in general, gold is considered a fungible commodity. If you pan for gold, and you end up with half an ounce of gold that way, that's worth the same as a half ounce of gold in any other format, whether it's a nugget, or dust, or a teeny tiny piece off a gold bar, or whatever, one bit of gold is worth the same as an equivalent amount of that gold, assuming the other 
things are the same. Like the purity of the gold is the same. That does account for differences in value. But let's say that you go to the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City. Maybe you're the sibling of a thief who had a really unsuccessful run at Nakatomi Plaza and you want to clear out the Federal Reserve. Now, this bank stores gold in an underground vault and it holds it on behalf of financial institutions from all over the world. Each gold bar has a serial number that identifies that gold bar and to whom that gold bar belongs. These serial numbers correspond with ledgers, and those ledgers are a complete record of which gold bars belong to which financial institutions, and in this case, the gold bars are measured with incredible precision to determine their weight and purity, which means each gold bar has its own distinct value. And it also means you can't just swap the bars around. You couldn't turn to Liechtenstein and say, okay, so you want five gold bars, and you just grab any five off the vault shelves you would have to retrieve the specific bars indicated by whichever client you're talking to because each bar would have a specific value that could vary a little bit or maybe even a lot from other bars that are in the vault. So this type of gold bar is not fungible. Okay, but what does all this have to do with digital goods? Let's consider the nature of digital stuff for a bit. One of the big differences between digital and physical goods is the ease of replication and distribution. This is something that has been an enormous issue in the business world, and it's something that we see prompting big companies to overreact in ways that range from bewildering to incredibly negligent and beyond. So let's consider a few examples. Essentially, whenever a technology comes along that allows the common folk, you know, like me, to copy stuff, well, big companies get ants in their britches. If you want to go all economic thought on this, it's all about the means of production and who has access to them. In a capitalist society, the means of production are in the hands of private individuals and companies who then may profit off the stuff that they produce. And that totally makes sense, right? You make something, you can profit off of that something if someone else wants to buy it. And of course, in the world we live in, a lot of the stuff we can buy comes from really big companies that are churning out products at an enormous scale. So, when tech comes around that can make copies of stuff, that scares these companies. One thing big companies do not like to see, for some reason, are things that can make their numbers next to profit go down on a spreadsheet. And if a technology allows people to copy stuff rather than buy things from a company, that's a potential hit to the bottom line. And we've seen this over and over, from the first cassette tape and audio recorders that made it possible to duplicate music albums, to VCRs that created a home theater industry, to the MP3 format, to peer-to-peer -to -peer networks that facilitated file transfers. In each of these cases, big established industries like movie studios, television studios, and music labels have lobbied governments to come up with increasingly harsh penalties that target people who are creating unauthorized copies of work. So in other words, making copies of stuff without permission. Now, in most of these cases, it turned out that the concerns were largely unwarranted. Yes, the ability to copy stuff can be scary, but the real issue was that these very big companies that got accustomed to the industry working a certain way were not ready for changes when those changes happened. Eventually, these same companies found new ways to do business that were just as, if not more, profitable than previous methods. 
Movie and TV studios hated the idea of VCRs when they first came out, when VCRs had home recording capabilities. But this eventually gave birth to the home video industry, and those same companies found out that the properties they owned, many of which had laid dormant in storage because there was no place to exhibit them, suddenly that represented a new stream of revenue. Music labels discovered first the lucrative market of MP3 stores, and later the potentially even more lucrative market of streaming audio, which, hey, represented the best of all worlds, because with streaming, the end customer never actually owns a copy of the work. They just have permission to experience the work by streaming it to wherever they happen to be in a given moment. On top of all that, the entertainment industry would claim that any unauthorized download represents a monetary loss, which was something that just wasn't supportable. Here's how the argument goes. Company A produces some form of digital entertainment. Let's say it's an album from a popular performer. Pirate B decides to download an unauthorized copy of that album. Now Company A claims that they have experienced a loss, that Pirate B has stolen something from Company A. But here's the thing. It's a digital copy. The original file is still with Company A. It's not like Pirate B hacked into the company's database and removed a file so that that file is no longer there. The original file still exists. The company A can still sell copies of that file off to customers, so company A hasn't lost a product. If we contrast this with a physical store, a shoplifter does cost people money because that shoplifter has taken a physical item from the store. The store can't magically reproduce that physical item and then sell it off to a legitimate customer. That's an actual loss. But with the digital model, the same thing doesn't apply. Further, there's no way to argue that Pirate B would have ever purchased that album legitimately. So Company A can't even really claim that they lost out on a sale, because it's entirely possible that if Pirate B had never copied the album, that Pirate B just never would have listened to the album at all. And someone not buying something is not the same thing as someone stealing something. If I walk into a store and I look at a new computer, but I decide, hmm, I don't really need this right now, and I walk out, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't cost the company a sale. I just didn't decide to buy it. So even the U.S. government's accountability office concluded that media companies were going way too far with various claims of loss in numerous lawsuits filed against people who had downloaded music without authorization. Some of those cases were ludicrously vengeful, with studios seeking hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages against folks who had maybe downloaded a few songs. And the point is that these arguments that the studios were making just weren't supportable. But even though the arguments didn't hold water, they do point to a problem. Digital goods have value. That is clear. I mean, people want them, so there is value to those digital goods. And digital goods are also replicable. It's easy to make copies of files. But what if you wanted to buy the equivalent of an autographed version of a digital piece of art? Maybe you want to support a specific artist. Maybe you're kind of a digital collector. How would you even go about doing that? I mean, what does that mean in a world where these files can just be replicated in to infinity? I mean, how would you do it? Well, NFTs are a way to establish who ultimately has ownership of a unique, but not necessarily the original, 
digital item, even if there are millions of copies of that digital item floating around. When we come back, we'll explain the backbone of what makes this possible. But first, let's take a quick break. So we've covered how digital goods present a challenge, or a few challenges. How do you control supply of a digital good? And sure, the thought of controlling supply sounds a bit gross, because you could flip that on its head and say, how do you limit access to something? But we have to remember that creating stuff requires effort and skill. Creating something means that someone somewhere spent time and utilized their talent in order to do it. Presumably, they should receive something in return if other people want to access that work. Now, if we all lived in the Star Trek universe, where we learned that money is no longer a concern because scarcity doesn't exist, and so everyone can do whatever they want whenever they want because they like to do it, well, we would be having a different conversation. But instead, we live in a world where we need to be able to pay for stuff, like rent, food, and medical bills, and whatnot. And we have a limited number of hours in our lifetimes, and being able to earn money from spending some of those hours in our lives in ways that, if we're lucky, are both fulfilling and profitable, that's a big deal. But the digital world makes this challenging. It's why we have processes like DMCA takedowns, which can also sometimes get more than a bit overreactive. Ideally, you would use a DMCA takedown to stop someone from publishing or sharing your work without your authorization. But of course, some rights holders overstep and will issue takedown notices when someone is making fair use of work, but that's a topic for another episode. Another approach to protecting digital works is the dreaded Digital Rights Management, or DRM, category. The purpose of DRM is to limit how a work can be copied and or distributed. Sometimes, it involves including code in a digital product that limits the number of devices that can have access to that digital work. For example, you might purchase a game from an online store, and then see that you are authorized to install that game on up to, say, three devices. And furthermore, you might be limited on how many devices can access that digital work at a given time, so that if you are running an instance of a game on one machine, you cannot launch that same game on another machine while that first instance is still going. But DRM can lead to a lot of problems. For one thing, sometimes companies will employ measures that make it really hard for legitimate customers to actually consume the digital work that they have purchased. So let's say I've made a legitimate purchase of a music album using my phone, and now I've decided I want to listen to this album on my digital sound system so that I can enjoy it on a really good audio system. I want to transfer the file to the sound system. I don't want to just cast it from my phone. I might find that transferring the file over so that I can listen to it on this sound system is a huge hassle. I might have to jump through numerous hoops just to get it to work. Now, this is incredibly frustrating, and it often leads to old fogies like me saying, you know what, in the old days, we just take a vinyl album. It didn't matter if you played it on one turntable or the other. It's not fair to compare digital and physical media to one another this way, because it's not apples to apples. I swear that's not an iPod reference, but you get the point. Beyond that, some companies have taken DRM to do really stupid stuff. There's the famous example of Sony that introduced DRM on CDs, and if you inserted the CD into a CD-ROM drive on a computer, it created a potential backdoor for 
someone else to gain access to your computer. Sony ended up paying dearly for that mistake. So DRM can actually push some people who would be legitimate customers of a product into piracy. Because one of the things we frequently see in online piracy is that hackers will find ways to strip DRM from digital works. Now, this streamlines the experience of actually using the digital works. And so there's a case to be made that using certain strategies to protect digital works actually creates the incentive that pushes people toward piracy. It's complicated stuff. Beyond that, how do you determine who owns a specific instance of a digital work? If it's something that's replicable and easily distributable, how do you ascertain who owns it? And how do you have a tracking system to track the transfer of ownership from one party to another? Well, there is a solution to that problem, and it depends upon a system that was developed uh, largely in tune with cryptocurrency. So let's go back to the world of physical currency first. If we're talking actual physical currency of notes and coins and whatnot, we've got a big requirement to make that currency work. Actually, we got a, a lot of requirements, but one of the big ones is that we need to make sure that the average person cannot easily duplicate currency. We need that currency protected against counterfeiting. Otherwise, someone with the means would just create a whole bunch of fake cash and use it to stand in for the real thing. This causes all sorts of huge problems from leading to losses at the point of purchase, all the way to undermining confidence in the financial systems that support an entire economic system, like a country. And there are a lot of different protections that go into physical currency. There are special inks, special materials for notes, uh, there are special watermarks, serial numbers, all these kind of things. These are all elements that help protect against counterfeiting and make it easier for people to spot a fake before someone can pass it off as the real thing. And obviously, we've gotten better at creating more sophisticated protections. These don't guarantee that someone won't come up with a counterfeiting process, but they raise the level of difficulty to a point where it's really, really hard to do. And if you make something hard enough, that means that if you do want to do it, it's going to be really expensive. So if it's so expensive that you're not likely to be able to pay off the method you used to do the illegal thing, you're not going to do the illegal thing. It just doesn't make it's a, it's a bad return on investment, right? So that's one way to protect against counterfeiting. Just make it super hard to do. Well, that's physical money. Cryptocurrency being digital needs some similar protections. It needs the digital equivalent of that special blend of paper and cloth that dollar bills have, or the serial number, or the, the ink, or transparent panes within the note, or whatever it might be. It needs a way to protect against duplication. Otherwise, you might grab a Bitcoin through some means. Maybe you've purchased one, maybe you mined it, whatever. Then you might copy it a billion times and either become a billionaire or more likely crash the value of the cryptocurrency beyond repair. If you could find a way to duplicate Bitcoin, then the entire system falls apart because no one would ever know if a Bitcoin is quote-unquote real or a duplicate. It's already digital, which gives people a sense that it's not quote-unquote real to start off with, but digital goods do have value as long as people have a desire for those digital goods. A digital good is only worthless if literally no one wants it, and at least no one wants it enough to spend money or effort at getting it. How then do cryptocurrencies avoid duplication? How can Bitcoin make certain that someone doesn't try and spend the same virtual coin more than once? 
This is where blockchain comes into play. And it's important to note right off the bat that blockchain and Bitcoin are not synonymous. Heck, blockchain and cryptocurrency aren't synonymous. Bitcoin depends upon the technology of blockchain, but blockchain can apply to lots of different types of transactions, not just Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general. But let's get into how it works, because man, this technology is one that is a challenge for people to understand. We're going to use Bitcoin as an example for this because it's arguably the most well-known, at least on a surface level, of an example of this technology. At the heart of the matter is a ledger. This is a record of every single transaction made within the Bitcoin system. And every node in that system, that is every computer or computer network, it's a point of contact, all of them have access to seeing this ledger. It is a universal ledger that everyone has access to. The ledger broadcasts each and every transaction that occurs within the system. The nodes, as in those points of contact, then decide the order in which the transactions occur. They agree upon this. And that last bit is a really critical piece. Not all digital currencies rely on blockchain. Some are controlled by financial institutions like banks. These institutions step in to arbitrate issues, such as if there's a payment dispute. But because the banks have to do this, they have to act as an arbiter, these same banks tend to have a lot of fees for customers to pay but to cover the cost of being an arbiter. Also, the process moves rather slowly. The blockchain approach replaces everything with cryptographic evidence, and the nodes agree on what evidence actually is. So let's say that I have a Bitcoin and I want to buy something with it. Here's the fun part. When I started researching this episode, a Bitcoin's value was around 57,000 US dollars. Side note, as I record this, it's closer to $55,000. Either way, I guess I'm buying a car with it. So I plop down my Bitcoin, digitally speaking, and I purchase a brand new Tesla Model 3, uh, which means I should actually get some change back on that deal because I think a fully kitted out Tesla Model 3 with all the options would top out under $55,000. So I fill up my online shopping cart with a Tesla Model 3 and I make the purchase, but then I quickly switch tabs to a different shopping window. And in that window, let's say I've got a 2021 Chevrolet Camaro. And this one's not totally tricked out because those can get upwards of around $70,000 with all the options. So I hit purchase on that as well. Now, I only have one Bitcoin to my name, but I've just tried to spend it twice. And the process to verify a transaction can take about 10 minutes. So what happens? Well, each of those transactions gets submitted to the ledger, which announces the transaction to all the nodes that connect to the blockchain system. The nodes then work out the order of transactions, and a majority of the nodes have to agree on which came first. And that will invalidate the other transaction, because I cannot say, spend the same Bitcoin twice. So does that mean I'm going to end up with the Tesla? Probably, but not necessarily. The majority of nodes could conclude that I actually ordered the Camaro first. But even so, that would mean that the Camaro transaction would be authorized and the Tesla one would be null and void. Each Bitcoin is, in effect, a series of digital signatures that, if you were to trace them back from most recent to oldest, it would lead back to the original creation of the Bitcoin and every transaction it had been through since that point. Each signature is a record of a transaction, which means a Bitcoin effectively has a memory of every single time someone used it in some form of transaction. 
In addition, Bitcoin relies on the cryptographic practice of maintaining a public key. That is, a cryptographic key that everyone has access to, as well as a private key for each user. Only the user has access to the pri their own personal private key. So when I make this transaction, my public key and the most recent of the transactions that was on the Bitcoin, the one, the most recent transaction before the one I'm making, that is, those get hashed together and my digital signature adds on to that Bitcoin. A hash, by the way, is a process by which I can feed a string of characters into an algorithm and it produces a fixed size output based on whatever my input was. So let's say the hash creates a string that's 20 characters long. That's going to be the output. It does not matter how long of a string of data I feed to this algorithm. I might feed a one string, one character string into it, or a thousand character string into it. The output is going to be 20 characters long. However, the actual characters in that string, you know, there's going to be 20 of them, but the specific ones that appear in that string are going to depend on whatever I used as the input. The hashes created on Bitcoin show the chain of ownership. It's this paired with the timestamped transactions from the server and the nodes that are agreeing on transaction order that all prevent Bitcoins from being double spent. Oh, and uh, blockchain groups transactions together into blocks of data. That's why it's called blockchain. You have a chain of tr blocks of transactions. Each block is cryptographically hashed to the previous blocks. Now, that also means there's no way to change the record. So let's say that this chain is 10 blocks long. If you tried to change the record of a transaction that was back in block number four, it would force everything from block five onward to change as well. And since the ledger is universal, meaning every computer or node on the system can see it, no one would be able to get away with those changes because everyone would see that the ledger was changing. That's the basics of blockchain and Bitcoin. Now there's more to it than that, and it gets really technical, but now we have the basis of what makes NFTs work. When we come back, we'll learn a bit more about NFTs in particular. But first, let's take another quick break so I can breathe. And now we're up to non-fungible tokens. Like Bitcoin, NFTs are tied to blockchains. Ethereum is one of the most uh, common ones. Ethereum has the built-in support for things that are not just cryptocurrency to work on that blockchain. So NF a lot of NFTs are built on the Ethereum system. So a blockchain doesn't have to be connected to cryptocurrency. It can be a way to track any type of transaction. Some companies are using blockchain to create a way to track different components in supply chains. So using a blockchain, it would be possible to maintain a record of stuff ranging from fruit that was picked hundreds of miles away and all the stops it made before it finally got to your kitchen table, or tracking authentic designer handbags from the point of origin to the point of sale so that you know you're not looking at a counterfeit. The blockchain gives insight and peace of mind. You know exactly where that thing has been because there's an unalterable digital record of every transaction involving that thing. So an NFT is a token that connects to a digital item that has a unique ID. This is different from Bitcoin, so Bitcoin technically doesn't have its own ID. Bitcoins are associated with specific transaction outputs. So the transaction has an ID, but 
technically speaking, the Bitcoin itself does not. NFTs have to have an ID. This is how you identify which instance of a digital something is, in fact, the one that is up for purchase. And in a way, it's like saying, how can you tell who owns a specific instance of a unique digital item? And the NFT is the way of doing that. With physical goods like a book, you could have a lot of ways of differentiating them, right? They could be hardback, they could be paperback, they could be an original edition, they could be autographed. All of this is easily verifiable. With digital goods, it's a lot more challenging because they're digital, they're ephemeral. So really what an NFT ends up being is a digital signature, much like what we see with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And just like cryptocurrencies, an NFT can be part of a transaction. And making that transaction means that the NFT goes through a very similar process as a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency. There's a time-stamped transaction and a cryptographic hash that records the transfer of the NFT, so it moves from one party's ownership to another. The transaction enters into a universal ledger, and every node within that system can see that universal ledger, and the nodes verify the block of transactions that the NFT was part of, and thus ownership has changed hands and everybody knows about it. Now, nothing physical has actually changed hands. It's not like a painting at an auction, where you might go to an auction, you bid truckloads of money for a Monet, and at the end of the auction, assuming that you won the bid, you could take that painting home, or you could put it in a museum or whatever. But with an NFT, what has happened is that there is a record of digital ownership that has changed hands. You own the NFT instance of whatever digital item you were buying. But because it's digital, it's still ephemeral. What's more, there might be many, many copies of that digital thing out in the wild. In fact, if it's a popular piece of digital art, there could be countless copies out there. And an NFT is not the same thing as owning the original instance of something. It's not like going to an art auction and buying the original canvas painting of a Monet. It might be like going to an art auction and buying a print of a Monet that happens to be autographed by somebody. Presumably not Monet. I don't think Monet's around signing prints of Monet's work. But an NFT doesn't even mean that the owner of that NFT tokened digital item has any copyright to that work. If I purchase an NFT connected version of, say, the keyboard cat video, all that means is that specific NFT instance of keyboard cat is what I own. The actual creator of the Keyboard Cat video could make as many NFTs based off that video as they liked. They could have a different NFT uh, version of the Keyboard Cat video for like 20, 50, 1,000 different people if they wanted to. Each NFT would be digitally unique from a signature standpoint, but they would all represent the same source of digital work, which is kind of weird, right? Now, if we go back to thinking about books, you can start to grok this a little better, or at least I can. So an author writes a book. The author auctions off the chance for someone to buy an autographed, personalized copy of the book. The person who wins that auction, obviously they don't get the copyright to the book itself. They can't rake in the royalties for sales of that book. The author still retains the copyright and can continue to make a living off that book. What you have is a specific instance of that book 
that is autographed and personalized. There's also nothing stopping the author from doing more auctions to offer more chances for autographed copies personalized to other people. These instances are all unique in of themselves, but they all come from the same source material. Now, there have been several extremely high-profile NFT transactions recently. For example, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, auctioned off an NFT representing his first tweet ever, which just said, quote, just setting up my Twitter, end quote. Twitter was spelled without vowels, so it was T-W-T-T-R. He posted that back on March 21st, 2006, and he auctioned off an NFT token representing the tweet. Uh, The winning bid came in at more than $2.9 million. And, you know, this doesn't mean that the tweet has disappeared from everybody else's view, right? So what does ownership even mean? I'm not sure I could even tell you. We're getting into some fuzzy territory here because clearly everyone can still see the tweet. Everyone knows what that tweet is. Where is the value? What is the point of ownership? I'm not sure I know. I can tell you, however, that Dorsey donated the proceeds of that auction to a charity, which was pretty awesome. Or take the work of the artist Beeple, whose real name is Mike Winkleman. He's been making digital art for more than a decade, and he began to experiment with NFTs a few months ago. This led to an NFT representing a collection of his works going on auction at Christie's, the company that oversees, like, really big, real legit art auctions. And this brought in a lot of money, as in $69 million. But these works of art exist on the internet, which means you can actually look at them, you can copy them, you could store them on your home device, on your phone, whatever. You can make as many copies as you liked. So again, what does NFT ownership actually mean? Because you don't own the original. It's not like purchasing that painting that an artist has created personally. You don't own the copyright. What do you own? Well, you own a record of a transaction. Yay? NFTs can be a way that let you support an artist, and that, I think, is totally cool. Digital art is very hard to monetize because of this replicability and easy-to-distribute nature of digital goods. It's hard for digital artists to make money off their work because it's so easy to just lift it for free. You know, unless it's part of an established commercial endeavor, a lot of digital artists struggle to make money from their work. So maybe there's an artist that you like who creates really cool digital art. Purchasing a work connected to NFT might be a way to show your support, and because that transaction happens on a publicly viewable blockchain, or at least publicly viewable to any node connected to that blockchain, that support that you gave is public, and public support can be a huge help to an artist. If more people see that a certain artist's work is moving, like people are buying NFT tokens representing pieces of work from this particular artist, then maybe they go and help support that artist, and that artist flourishes as a result. That's great. But a lot of the reporting on NFTs right now isn't so much about supporting artists as it is about speculation, like speculation from an economic standpoint. This means that NFTs are kinda, in a way, being treated sort of like cryptocurrency is. You've likely heard me say on many occasions that cryptocurrency really comes across more as a commodity than as a currency. 
the value of cryptocurrencies tends to be, let's say, fluid. And thus, it's hard to treat cryptocurrency as a real means of exchange. More people treat it as a way to invest and increase their money. And NFTs seem to be headed in that general direction right now. Owning the digital signature of a transaction for a specific instance of art is sort of like having bragging rights. And as long as people ascribe value to those bragging rights, it will be worth something. In fact, at least in the short term, the value will likely go up because lots of people are hearing about NFTs, they're curious about it, they want to get in on it, especially the cryptocurrency fans, they really want to jump on this, this bandwagon. But a lot of people, including Beeple, it turns out, have expressed some concern that what we're seeing is sort of a speculative bubble that could collapse at any moment. All right, but how do you store NFTs? I mean, if you were to buy a physical work of art, you would have to put that in some physical location. But if an NFT is a digital signature, where does it go? The answer to that is a digital wallet, though it has to be a digital wallet that's also compatible with NFTs. This is the same way that cryptocurrencies work. That digital wallet would exist on a physical piece of hardware, like a computer, preferably one that is in a pretty secure location and has password protection. But it also means that if you were to ever lose that hardware or lose the password to access it, you would also lose all access to the NFT. Now, you would still own it, but you would never be able to transfer that NFT to anyone else. So let's say you bought an NFT for a dollar, and now, according to the market, it's worth like a gazillion dollars, but you no longer have access to the computer that holds the di that digital wallet, you would be up the creek. Oh, and one other thing we have to talk about. While we've been chatting about digital processes, it's time to talk about environmental impact of NFTs, because there is one. And that's because the process of proof-of-work cryptographic approaches, which is what underlies NFTs and the cryptocurrencies that they work on top of, Bitcoin is an example, Ethereum is an example, that approach is tied to how much computer processing power is uh, dedicated toward that system. So see, the way those blocks get formed on a blockchain in Bitcoin is that you've got these Bitcoin miners. And what they're trying to do essentially is to solve a very hard math problem with their computer systems. The more computational power that is applied to those problems, the harder those problems get. This is a dynamic that's inherent in the way the system works. It's geared toward having blocks of transactions solved every 10 minutes or so. But that's, that's the goal, is to keep that 10 minutes pretty standard. To keep that timeline steady, the system has to adjust the difficulty of the problems that the different miners have to solve in order to you know, verify a block and have them added to the chain. Because if the problems are too easy, then the blocks would be solved in less than 10 minutes. And if it's too hard, then it would take too long. So every so often, the system readjusts how difficult these problems are. And it's essentially guessing a really big number. It's, it's, that's hard to do. It's hard to guess a very specific, very big number. And the reward for solving these problems, which again ultimately verifies a block of transactions so that it can join the blockchain, the reward are a certain number of Bitcoins, at least in the case of Bitcoin. 
Um, that number of Bitcoins actually goes down over time. Like the longer Bitcoin is in action, the fewer coins you get when you solve a block. Uh, right now, if you were to be running a computer system or more likely a computer network system that solved that problem, that guessed that very hard number, you would get a reward of 6.25 Bitcoins. That would be worth around $344,000 as I record this. But again, remember that you know the value of Bitcoin dropped $2,000 since I started researching this episode, which, um, fun fact, means that over the course of one day, we've seen the value of Bitcoin fluctuate by $2,000. Still, that's a huge payout, right? I mean, if you have that computer system and it solves the, the problem to validate a block of transactions and you get 6.25 Bitcoin, that's more than a quarter of a million dollars. So that is an enormous incentive for Bitcoin miners who spend ridiculous amounts of money to create very fast, very sophisticated networks of computers that are just dedicated to tackling these problems. That's all these computers are doing. They're trying to guess that number. And it also means the average person running a typical computer has next to zero chance when it comes to mining. It would be kind of like if you were given a pickaxe that was covered in rust and the person next to you is running a 100-ton high-tech, high-speed drill and you're both given the task to try and find a specific gem somewhere in a mountain of stone. You're not going to be able to keep up. But it also means that Bitcoin mining requires a lot of electricity to power all these computers all over the world. And the same is true for other cryptocurrencies, and it's also true for NFT transactions. They all kind of are wrapped up with each other. In fact, NFT transactions are typically overlaid on top of an existing cryptocurrency system. The NFT transactions become parts of blocks representing also cryptocurrency transactions. And all this relies upon that mass of computer power that's just chugging away, racing against other similarly powerful networks of computers, all trying to be the first to guess that very big number to validate a block and thus reap the rewards. Memo Acton on Medium wrote up a pretty exhaustive series of blog posts that really went into detail about the energy requirements that are needed just to verify NFT transactions. And the estimates are really daunting. Acton specifically focused on Ethereum because the Ethereum cryptocurrency system allows for NFT transactions and is a very popular option. And a single Ethereum transaction has an estimated electricity requirement of 35 kilowatt hours of electricity or about the same amount of electricity that a resident in the European Union would use over the course of four days for just one transaction. In turn, Acton states that this generates an estimated 20 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions once you trace back the origin point for electricity generation. Like, where are your, where's your electricity coming from? So in other words, the fundamental process used by cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, as well as NFTs, feeds into a system of eye-popping amounts of energy consumption, which of course feeds back to the need for greater amounts of energy production. And that in turn creates a big ecological impact, particularly with carbon emissions. Now, I think I might hate NFTs for a couple of reasons. 
I do like the ability to support artists who work in digital media. That part, I think, is really awesome. I really like that. But just about everything else either kind of irritates me in that grumpy old man kind of way, or it legitimately worries me. But I'm curious to hear what you think. Don't let my bias affect you. I come at this admitting that I have a specific point of view. And I also admit that my point of view does not necessarily reflect what is right or what is wrong. Obi-Wan would be so proud of me. And that wraps up our episode to explain what NFTs are and how they work. I hope you found this episode useful. I covered a lot of different topics here, but they all do tie into the general systems that make NFTs what they are. And I felt like leaving any of it out would have meant that I would have been lacking some context for you. If any of you folks have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, I welcome you to send them to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. Please don't make me buy an NFT token version of your tweet. I I, I don't have that kind of cheddar on me right now. But otherwise, send it to me. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 